I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 82 for September 2019. I'm Duncan. And I'm Simon. And 1982 had some great films. Time for a list. 48 Hours, Blade Runner, Beastmaster, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, Diner, The Draftsman's Contract, E.T., Fanny and Alexander, Fitzcarraldo, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Gandhi, Missing, My Favourite Year, Pink Floyd the Wall, Plague Dogs, Rocky Three. Richard Pryor live on the Sunset Strip, which is one of his uh, final great stand-ups. Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan. The Verdict. Tron. Uh, everyone's favourite horror, The Thing. The World According to Garp. And appropriately enough, First Blood. And there's a few films I saw that year uh, in the cinemas. And that was The Dark Crystal. I saw Goofy Bud Spencer film, Banana Joe. <laughs> uh, Battle Truck. Battle truck man. Yeah, I remember. I remember my brother had a like a black and white A four advertisement from the movie. Like out of. I the... was obsessed with that film, and I never saw it until I was a grown up. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. But the artwork, yeah. the poster. He had this poster, and it was out of the newspaper, and he yeah. stuck it on his door. I remember that on his bedroom door. Far out. And it was a G A. There was G, G Y, then G A. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and also, they call me Bruce. Uh, <laughs> a kung fu comedy about a regular guy being mistaken for Bruce Lee and always getting into fights. Uh, not with Brad Pitt, though. No. <laughs> um, I remember they called me Bruce. It was kind of a sex comedy as well, too, wasn't it? Like, oh. he was always meeting beautiful ladies in, in jacuzzis or whatever. They, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just remember him being all a bit, like, awkward and goofy. Think of its time, eh? Yeah. Was, yeah, yeah. They had a sequel called They Still Call Me Bruce. Yeah, which yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know if I ever saw, but I definitely remember seeing that. It feels Bruce. like The Gods Must Be Crazy is, is one yeah. of those things um, full of racial stereotypes that doesn't really exist today, I don't yeah. think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if we take nothing from that list, Beastmaster. Beastmaster, yo. Yeah. Look, Slashes rolled on in 82. as Friday the 13th popped out in 3D. Love that. Halloween 3 got weird. Uh, things took a feminist bent in Slumber Party Massacre. <laughs> film I feel that we could and maybe should talk about one day in another podcast ep. Uh Lucio Fulci released his most controversial film in a career full of controversial films with the CD New York Ripper, um, following it up with the blandly tame Manhattan Baby which I think must have been like him just retreating right? after everyone um, got disgusted with all his um, <laughs> nipple trauma. <laughs> well, perhaps the grossest of the bunch, the shocking pieces escaped with the wonderful tagline, it's exactly what you think it is. <laughs> That's the tagline. I love that. It's That's great. Exactly what you think it is. Elsewhere, Tobe Hooper released The Sublime Poltergeist. Oh, yeah. Frank Henenlotter gifted us the off-disgust on this podcast anyway, Basket Case, and, uh, and Argento gave us the brutal giallo tenebrae which young Simon loved, <laughs> as did Brian De Palma, who would steal the twist ending for his thriller, Raising Kane. Young Simon also loved Alone in the Dark, which I think everyone's forgotten about now, <laughs> with its classy cast, including Martin Landau and Jack Palance. Right. You know, for a cheap horror film. Yeah. Um, and a nice twist involving a character known only as the Bleeder. <laughs> but the star of 82, at least to modern Fright fans, is John Carpenter's Icebound Tale of Paranoia and Parasitic Mutants, The Thing. Hmm. Everything that needs to be said about this film has already been said. It's wonderful and holds up brutally well. Uh, but I was reminded about it recently when I read this great anecdote from Gelamo del Toro just mm. in the last month, actually. 
one night over dinner, I told John Carpenter how much all generations loved the thing, how amazing it was that it had, over time, found its audience and was now revered. What fucking good does that do to me, he said. <laughs> we ordered dessert. <laughs> Classic Carpenter. That's great. Carpenter. He doesn't care that people love it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm sure he does. He's such a curmudgeon. No. But he, but he cares that they didn't love it at the time. And I guess actually another one's Blade Runner, right? So Blade Runner was kind of met with this lukewarm response at the time in 82. Mm. And people were just going, what is this, you know? Now, you know, talk about revered. Yeah. Those two films together in the same year, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you ever think what what films that we're reviewing are going to be, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Years from now, people will be talking about, wow, why didn't anyone get, you know, how great, I know, Robin Hood was? Yeah, that's you know? right. Yep. Um, <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Office Christmas party, <laughs> underappreciated gem that critics just didn't give the yeah. time for, you know? It was, yeah, it's this generation's, the, you know, the apartment. Yeah. It's just pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Ahead of its time. Yeah. I, I wonder what film it's going to be. Yeah. Could it be today's film that we talk about? Maybe it, <laughs> I think it's safe to say, safe bet that it won't okay. be. All right. So, look, what have you been watching? A while back, Simon spoke about the, what we've come to call the crazy, stupid love syndrome. A film which, after 30 minutes, you think you're going to recommend, and then something happens to invert your feelings on that film. And something similar happened when I watched The Oath, an American Thanksgiving comedy that starts like the Griswold's vacation being torn apart by partisan politics. Uh, the orange one is sensibly not named at all. Instead, the oath of the title is a pledge taken by Americans to obey the president. The main character finds it abhorrently offensive while his brother and girlfriend are proudly right-wing, his parents walking the line of obedience, and others signing the pact to make their life easier. Writer, director, and lead actor Ike Barinholtz displays the hysteria, misinformation, fake news, and tribalism from both sides with really cringe-inducing accuracy. And when government agents appear at the Thanksgiving dinner, the arguments change from family disagreements to something a lot more sinister. And then... The film ties itself in knots. It's so frustrating that the film goes from 100 to 0 kilometers an hour, particularly when there are shards of light peeking through that indicate the murky mess of the second half could have been brightened up. It's one of those films which I wasn't expecting much. I was pleasantly surprised in the first half hour and then just massively disappointed the longer it went on. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, I've never heard of this film. Yeah, yeah. It's just one of those ones where you're like, oh, that's an interesting kind of... Uh, uh, premise. Yeah, premise. And I thought it was going to be more scathing and, and smarter. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it kind of starts off quite like quite well yeah. and quite believably. Um, and then it just escalates and, yeah, it just gets a bit um, one note, uh, which is a real shame. But, yeah. Um, yeah, the first kind of half hour I thought, oh, this is going to be one of those kind of hidden gems. And sure enough, it was like, oh, got yeah, the end. Right. It was like disappointing. But, uh, yeah, I think you've... Qu- Coined that crazy, stupid love syndrome. That's I really like that. That's what I kind of apply to these films. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember that feeling so clearly. And I've had it a few times since. In the yeah. Summer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. And what about you? What have you been watching? When I think of Dashiell Hammett, I tend to think of hardball detective stories. But in 1934, one of his lighter stories became an enduring murder mystery classic that launched a hit franchise and became a multi-Oscar nominee. Uh, and I finally got to it this month. The William Powell and Myrna Loy starring The Thin Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, we meet our hero, Nick Charles, halfway to drunk at a swanky club early in the film. His wife, Nora, joins him soon after and asks how much he's had to drink and then orders enough just to catch up. And that's how it is from then on. This elegant pair of Powell and Loy are always somewhere on the inebriated spectrum. I mean, there's not a scene in this film in which there's not a drink at hand. <laughs> no matter what they are. There's one scene where they're woken in the night and Powell immediately pours drinks for the couple from a tray they keep in their bedroom. 
I love it. I know it's fantastic. They're both charming, but it's Powell's delivery that nails it every time. There's a scene where Nick is shot by this intruder, and it's a wound he barely acknowledges. Like he just grabs a towel and they sort of press it against his side. You know, That's yeah. he's, he's cool. And the next day they read about this incident in the newspapers. I was shot twice in the Tribune, Nick observes. I read you were shot five times in the tabloids, says Nora. It's not true, says Nick. You didn't come anywhere near my tabloids. <laughs> I love it. It's all light and witty and so, so elegant. Um, Powell is effortlessly delightful and Loy making a break into lighter roles is a dream. And I love that we're introduced to them both as a couple in love and that never changes throughout the film. They have a disagreement over how much Nora wants to be included in the case they're investigating, but we're never made to doubt the strength of the relationship. That's kind of rare in a movie, you know? Mm. If, if you introduce me to a, a hard-drinking private investigator like Nick's supposed to be, then yeah. I expect him to meet a dame. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't expect him to, to be married and happily and finish the film happily. And yeah. apparently that carried on in the whole six-film series that right. followed. Because it became this big franchise, mm. you know? I mean, this film was nominated for Best Film... Director, actor, wow, um, and I think um, screenplay. Oh wow, it's amazing. Yeah, eh? and um, incredibly hard to find. Right, which is absurd. Yeah, for a, you know a film so huge, but back in its day. Yeah, especially to spawn a series, you'd think that they would have uh, released a box set or something. Yeah, I think there's a Blu-ray set, but I mean not in this region. Mm. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, I'll yeah. Have to check that out. Yeah, well worth a look. You don't seem to want to accept the fact that you're dealing with an expert in guerrilla warfare. With a man who's the best, with guns, with knives, with his bare hands. A man who's been trained to ignore pain, ignore weather, to live off the land, to eat things and to make a billy goat puke. In Vietnam, his job was to dispose of enemy personnel, to kill, period. Win by attrition. Well, Rambo was the best. All right, welcome to No Comps. Uh, this is section the podcast where we go and review a film that's just come out and that film is Rambo Last Blood. Written by Sylvester Stallone and Matt Kurilinik. Directed by Adrian Grunberg. Starring Sylvester Stallone, Paz Vega, Yvette Monreal and Sergio Perez Manchetta. Yeah, I'm kind of glad I left that part to you actually. <laughs> After his niece, is that what she is? I'm a bit confused. I don't even know. Uh, goes to Mexico to find her dad. Rambo, now settled down as a horse trainer in Arizona, crosses the border to find her, soon running afoul of evil Mexican sex and drug trafficking cartels. Naturally, many deaths occur, and soon the cartel is crossing the border to hunt down Rambo, who has turned his Arizona farm into a killing zone in preparation for their arrival. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Look, to paraphrase a famous Russian playwright, you don't show us a meticulously built... <laughs> You don't show us some meticulously built underground tunnels in Act 1 without in Act 3 turning them into vast tracks of epically lethal booby traps. So introduced early on is what I like to call Chekhov's tunnels. Uh, Rambo has carved out these tunnels beneath his farmhouse. Uh, here I'm going to apply a psychological reading as the tunnels represent Rambo's mind. Long, dark, subterranean labyrinth that he obsessively tends to, his self-made prison built of torturous memories that forever haunt him. And at the end, they exploded, uh, caving in as Rambo emerges back into the sunlight. Man, maybe this film will be revisited in years to come, yeah, and the psychoanalyst will apply that sort of reading to it. I'm pretty certain he's going to come across like, you know, uh, The Searchers, basically. That, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Possibly. Um Look, I'm sure we're going to get to like the message of the film, the themes 
if you will, if you like. Mm. But before we do, I'm going to try and imagine a kind of morally neutral version of this film. Good luck. Yeah, and review it like that. Just in case anyone accuses me of being some left-wing snowflake beta cuck. <laughs> um, let's imagine instead of Mexicans, this was Rambo versus Robots. A film I'd probably rather watch, by the way. Yeah. But, you know, morally neutral robots. Okay. Well, it would still be a terrible film. <laughs> As a piece of filmmaking, Last Blood's biggest crime is that it has no suspense. Nothing happens in Last Blood that you don't see coming a mile away, like the tunnels we were introduced at the beginning. Mm. You see those tunnels, and they're dug for one reason. Yeah. When, when Gabrielle announces she wants to find her dad in Mexico, you know she's going, no matter what Rambo says. You know that everyone she meets in Mexico will be horrible, like Rambo said, and you know that he will go after her. No surprises so far. You won't be surprised that Rambo isn't killed when he's captured, or that he wants revenge, or that the revenge meted out will take place in the network of tunnels that exist for no other reason than to be the final act in a revenge film. There are no twists in this film. There are no shocking discoveries or characters who surprise you with their actions. It's not exactly a roller coaster of a film. It's more of a log flume ride where instead of water, there's lots of blood. And the log is made of, out of simplistic racial stereotypes, careening towards my rapidly collapsing metaphor. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that's right. Um, it, you, you managed to stay pretty neutral there until the end. So until the end, but it, I mean, it had to be addressed eventually. It did, yeah, yeah. It's simultaneously redundant and yet necessary to say that the fifth Rambo film is politically moribund. Offensively simplistic presentations of Mexicans. At the best, they are naive and ineffectual. At the worst, they are sadistic, murderous, drug-fueled rapists. And somewhere in between are like cholo females who sell out their friends into sex slavery and heartless fathers who abandon their children and then tell them that they're utterly meaningless to them. And this is in keeping with the entire series, decades-long hysterical xenophobia. Just this time, it's a little closer to home for the lead character. And of course, in the current political climate, it's difficult not to see it as a wish fulfillment of the most alarming variety. Then again, it's probably not a surprise that in 40 years and across five films, Rambo movies have only ever been released when a Republican holds office. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So the last one was Bush. Yeah, it was a tail end of Bush, 2008. So it was before huh. Obama took office. Right. Yeah. And then obviously 88 was uh, Bush Senior. And right. then 85 and 82. Have you uh, tried to apply the same thing to the Rocky films? Uh, good, good point. Uh, no, I don't. Well, if you count Creed, I would say no, because yeah, no, Creed no. would have been released Creed first. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know about the other ones. No, I, I've no reason to suspect it, there would be any correlation. Yeah, just that they, the, Rocky as a character is like the anti-Rambo. Really, he's you yeah. know a character who finds um, meaning and um, some sort of life through violence, not yeah. the same sort of violence, but you know That's he right. expresses himself and finds his way through this. Hmm. And like Rambo, who's potential perennially lost in it, eh? Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's interesting because I thought Stallone does delineate between Rocky and Rambo and Rocky is an optimist who banters with his closest friends and is content with his lot of life for a large extent. Sure. While Rambo is a sullen, dead-eyed, cursed man who's devoid of joy and Stallone's age helps with the grizzled feels of the film. He's a leathery slab of human flesh and the gnarled skin displays years of weathering um, and some of it at the... Um, <laughs> at the knife of the surgeon, yeah. should we say? No, no, totally, totally. <laughs> yeah, look, it is reactionary nonsense, eh? Oh, no, yeah. All the Mexicans are evil, and Rambo knows this because you know he knows how how dark a man's heart can be, or something. Yeah. Um, I like the fact there's two scenes that show the wall. The first has Rambo 
driving straight across a flim, flimsy bit of fencing on his return from Mexico. Just, I assume, to show that the wall needs to be built because this is the only thing. You yeah. Know? And then there's a second um, where they have a bunch of cartel members simply tunnelling under a more impressive stretch of steel. And to be fair, Stallone is perhaps right here. Perhaps the wall does need to be built to protect Mexicans from 73-year-old men crossing the border to murder them. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, what's keeping them safe from, yeah. from old Americans? Um, look, as an action film, it's a bit of a bust as well, I've got to say. It's dark and grim and lumbering and bloody. Stallone emerges from the shadows occasionally to stab somewhere, someone or wallop them with a hammer. More Jason Voorhees than Jason Bourne. And that's no surprise. He's a 73-year-old man. He's not going to be going John Wick on bad guys, you know? Mm. But that doesn't make for a particularly exhilarating viewing experience. I remember watching The Last Rambo and being struck by how brutal it had become. Mm. Well, this film certainly doesn't stint on ugly violence either. The Rambo films have become horror films. And really, what else can they do? Yeah. You know? The lead can't do action anymore. He's just not physically capable of it. So there really is only brutal violence left for this franchise. And it, 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 this was the first film where that really I realised that. Like, the last one, I just thought it was a, you know, gruesome exception to mm. the, rock, uh, the Rambo films, which had always been violent, don't mm. get me wrong. But then that film just really luxuriated in its brutality. Yeah, it's kind of like um, the first three films were, especially Rambo 2 and 3, were violent, but they're not graphic. No. So, and a lot of people were accused of going, well, you're not taking all of this violence seriously. You're not actually showing the destruction that you're... Yeah, it was comic book violence. Yeah, it was comic book violence. And so they're like, oh, yeah, okay, well, we will then. And you're like, well, that's not really the answer. No. No. (laughs) But I think they're only doing that because that's the only option they have. Yeah. Their lead actor's not going to be performing... You know, great feats of physical action. Yeah. Um, and so, really, all you've got is explosions of blood and, you mm. know, yeah, bone snapping. And while the film doesn't quite get to the mind melting violence of the previous installment, it has cartoonish punishment in the climax that doesn't bother with logic in a geographic sense, let alone any other way. The violence is meted out against mindless automatons who walk into gunfire and run into booby traps with slavish obedience. <laughs> the montage set up of the traps achieves its purpose of getting the audience on board and complicit in the carnage that is inevitably unleashed. Like there's that it's about ninety seconds long and it's just like, oh that's gonna hurt. Ouch, that's gonna hurt. Yeah. You know, they just show you about twenty five traps that you, yeah, you're yeah, setting yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. And they're all <laughs> gonna work perfectly, you know that. Yeah. But but I find even that carnage is like it's kind of dark and I can't yeah. see a lot of what's happening and it's edited, you know, in that way, so it's very fast. So I don't even think if that's your bag you're gonna get a hell of a lot of joy out of this. And the other thing is, with that, there's way more dudes get iced than actually show up, right? Like, when they show up, there's, like, eight cars, and right. you're like, and one okay. one of them blows up. And one of them blows up. So, you know what I mean? Like, I did the maths on that, and I'm like, okay, let's be generous and say there's 30 people there. He kills, like, 50 people in the end of that. There's at least 20 to 20 people more right, than actually right. possibly showed up. Because it's like, just, like, chopping, because he's blowing up whole, like, three people at a time. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. And scene after scene after scene. There's one part where he blows a dude's head off with a shotgun and then walks past him and puts bullets into his body. Yeah. You know? <laughs> if there's a you know, physical incarnation of overkill. Eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Last Blood brazenly steals from Lynn Ramsey's I'm Not Really There, where Joaquin Phoenix walks through a brothel clubbing men with a hammer. Rambo does exactly the same thing. Oh, right. I haven't seen that film yet. I yeah. Sorry to spoiler, but... Um, and, and that was kind of the first scene that kind of drew empathetic ooze from the audience. Right. Yeah, where everyone was like, ow. 
Because <laughs> yeah. he's just putting like hammers into people's balls and yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. across their head. But yeah, I was just it, exactly the same thing happens in. Uh, uh, I'm not well. You were never really there, right? So it was just like a really. I was like, wow, that's a really well, brazen thing to steal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was stuck with a couple of thought experiments while I was watching this film because mm-hmm. you know I didn't have much else to do. <laughs> um, the first was, what would a good version of this film be? You know. I think we'd probably have some thematic grey tones to it, potentially. Perhaps Rambo would descend so far into his embrace of violence that he brings death to those who obviously do not deserve it. Mm. Uh, because in the world of Last Blood, everyone does deserve it. Yeah. It would end up digging over the same ground as the first film, potentially, but that wouldn't be so bad, would it, you know, in a new setting? Mm. Uh, maybe in this version of the film, not all Mexicans are bad guys. Maybe, maybe some of them have a reason to feel disenfranchised. Or maybe Last Blood could be about a John Rambo who has gone past the violence, who ultimately finally does steer away from his darker impulses. Uh, sure, maybe nobody wants that film, but if done sensitive enough, it could be an interesting film. It's surely more compelling than what we ended up with. Hmm. It may be a more interesting film for a 73-year-old Sylvester Stallone to be making as well, you know? Yeah, it's interesting because everyone always talks about, now that the kind of, the, the, the film that everyone references is, uh, oh, it's going to be so-and-so's Logan. You know what I mean? Right. Like everyone's references Logan as like, oh, this is their Logan. And and Logan seemed to be like Wolverine's Unforgiven. Right. You know, when everyone's like, oh, this is his Unforgiven. Now it's just, oh, this is Logan. Uh, and so I think that that's, this is kind of thrown into this where you're like, oh, this is going to be his Logan. Right. But then it's also just this insane violence from the last yeah, movie yeah, where yeah. you're like, well, if you're trying to do the Logan thing, then this isn't going to work. No, no. Yeah, the two I mean, even John Wayne had the sense to do the shootest and kind of, yeah. you know, revisit his career in a way and yeah. you know there's still room here for another last last blood <laughs> there could be last blood part two you know yeah the new blood the new blood <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's handing off the mantle to you know yeah yeah and my second thought was imagine a world in which there was never a rambo franchise right there was first blood and then last blood wow. imagine that like you didn't have rambo two three and four would these films make any sense the first the story of a man who fought back against the authoritarianism and that bit at him and and embrace the anger in a country who didn't appreciate his sacrifices, you know, a PTSD sufferer who needed help to somehow refine his humanity, and then leap forward to 2019, and we have an old man living like a cowboy on America's frontier, still violent and prepared for war, this time against people on the other side of the border. What would we make of this? Would we be even... I mean, I struggle to see this character as that same character. Yeah, that's right. You know what I mean? And, and that these films is saying similar things, because they, they make no sense to me. They make yeah. sense a little bit if you had Rambo 4 before it mm. and you'd seen the way things were going. But, yeah. uh, you know, this film finishes with this credit sequence that shows him in First Blood. And I was thinking, man, that's a different movie. Completely. Massively different movie. Yeah, it really is. Um, yeah, that's. I mean, that's, that's a valid point. And also this one probably suffers from uh, even more than the last one of just, like I say, I mean, completely adjacent to the... The, the trappings of the original ones because the first the first one and even two and three have this thing of trying to fight for America but at the same time being completely cynical of the people who are running America yeah running American institutions this has none of that yeah like it doesn't even have him going to the Mexican police and then being pushed off or him trying to go to the yeah, border yeah, 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 yeah. you know guards and them getting pushed off yeah. so none of that it's just a straight revenge film yeah which isn't really in keeping with anything we've seen before yeah yeah, yeah. You know, exactly right, exactly right. Yeah. And, and in fact, if anything, it, it kind of removes any uh, decision-making from uh, Rambo himself. Because it's like, well, of course he's going to go and, you know, 
you know what I mean? Like, there's no real tough decision making he's got to do. Yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, well, of course he's just going to go he and just tell does people what he does. Yeah, but there's never a decision of, oh, should I get involved in this conflict? Yeah, it's like war. Well, the war is brought to him, kind of thing. Yeah, and that's what I mean about this film having no surprises. Yeah, like it was a. I just, you know, I, I just sat in my seat and it, it just it just flowed in front of me. I was yeah. never compelled by anything. There was no sort of sense of oh, I wonder what's going to happen here because yeah. I knew automatically where this was all going. Yeah, no other character in this film is anything other than a cipher. Rambo's world remains an aggressively male one, and when the lead villain says that the females he's enslaved mean nothing to him, that they're merely things, it could well be the writers talking about their creative process. The journalist character adds a little. She doesn't really do anything other than tend to a concussed Rambo, and with the criminals responsible for her sister's death, her vengeful motivation is strong, but... What the hell is she doing? <laughs> like, is she really going to write an article on the like <laughs> omniscient, powerful sex trafficking warlords in her town? <laughs> is that going to get her anything other than dead in like record yeah. time? And, and poor Yvette Monrell is a victim created for collateral purposes oh, alone. Uh, she's the most prolonged sacrifice this side of Passion of the Christ. Uh, mm. What's most galling is that her existence is for nothing more than justification for Rambo's actions. And yet her suffering, emotionally, mentally, and physically, goes on for like a disproportionate amount of time. It's so horrible. It's like at least a whole act of that film. Yeah. Which is like nearly 40 minutes, I'd say. Yeah. Just like, man, that's just way that's too long for this. So. Yeah. You know, one of the things that got me about that reporter, too, is like how seriously she takes his, um, his announcement that he's going to come back and have revenge on the cartel. Yeah. It's like... I don't know if I if if I had seen like if I knew what she knew about this gang all yeah. armed with machine guns and all young men and so many of them yeah. and this I keep mentioning his name this seventy three year old <laughs> man with a hammer said yeah I'm going to take them down kind of thing yeah. I'm like you're really not yeah I mean the only reason she takes it seriously is because she knows like we know we're in a Rambo film yeah that's right at that point and this is John Rambo yeah and it's ridiculous that anyone <laughs> should take that seriously eh <sighs> they should all be saying dude go back to your retirement home yeah you know. Take yeah. your pills. What are those pills for, by the way? Yeah. Yeah, like he's always shown taking pills and it's like, oh, this is important. Yeah. It's not. It's it not. Never, you know, it never becomes important. It's kind of yeah. like, oh, it's a crutch for him. It's like, well, aren't they, are they supposed to be painkillers? Yeah. They, uh, what are they? Are they as heart medication? What's, yeah. what's wrong with them? That's yeah. got to be an important... It's not. No. Um, and I, I, I don't tend to, like, like you do, I think. I don't, I don't read the reviews till I've written this, but mm. I did read a review afterwards where somebody described them as... as his don't kill Mexican pills. Just <laughs> 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 hilarious because, of course, as soon as he throws them away, that's when the Mexican killing does yeah. start. So it's almost like that was inhibiting his um, yeah. killing of people from across the border. <laughs> hilarious. Um, so I talked about the 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 girl. Mm. I don't. I still don't know what the exact relationship was. So uh, isn't it just like uh, his his maid or whatever she's supposed to be? Oh, okay. Like the woman, the the yeah, yeah. the older How woman. How old there. do you think she is? The uh, maid, by the way. I don't know. She's supposed to be like. She's supposed to be older than him. Surely not. Well, he talks about her being there when his father was alive and looking after the farm when her father. Ah, uh, yeah, true. So then I'm suddenly thinking, in what world do you think you might be younger than this? Because he's not. <laughs> no. he's, he's a good ten years older. Yeah, I would have assumed that maybe like he was off when his you know his thirties or whatever. Yeah. Well, the other thing is that, like, this has she's only been... a young maid at the time. Yeah, maybe she's in, like, her yeah. 20s. Yeah, you know? This has only been in the last 10 years. This th life. Uh, that he's that he's known this, this family. Oh, of really. course. 
because you know in 2008 he was off in Burma doing stuff. Wow, then right, yeah, right. Yeah. So then it's only been the last 10 years or Man. whatever. So because he says something along the lines of like you were eight years old or something, which means she's 18 now, which oh, yeah, yeah. Kind of matches, okay, yeah, that, matches that's, up. That's, so I think so, like so, he came back to the farm, his dad was either dying or dead, right, and then. Then the maid is there with her family, the mum. So she's the grandma, right? Right, right. She's the grandma, the the, the one who's there, who's the yeah, maid. Yeah, because I didn't spot it, but I understand that when he, he buries the daughter on the... Sorry, spoilers, folks. <laughs> <laughs> buries the daughter on the property. By the way, can you do that? Can you, like... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you can just bury people in your backyard. Yeah. But he does. He bury, I mean, people are going to be asking, like, what happened to her? Yeah. Yeah. Buried in the backyard. You know, because no one knows yeah, what happened. Exactly. She went to Mexico, cartels, she's buried, in, you know. Yeah. Um, there was another cross there with the name Helga Rambo. Ah, right. So who who is Helga Rambo? Is that his mum? Is that his mum or is it the mother of this girl? And maybe, like, I was thinking that, like, this was, like, Rambo's sister and the girl was, like, a niece. Man. See, this is how little I understand this film. Of a, yeah, they don't make it too clear. I, I, I bet you were figuring this, trying to figure this out in real time while you were sitting there. Going, <laughs> what else did I? Yeah, <laughs> waiting for the carnage to get unleashed. Yeah. Also, there is, surprisingly, the middle third of Last Blood is is really just people knocking on doors demanding answers. Yeah, it's just a lot of that, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sure like a vet Monroe, whatever her character's name is. She <laughs> she does that. Yeah. For like three different people knocking on doors. Oh, blah, 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 knocking yeah, on doors. Yeah, yeah. And then Rambo basically follows exactly her. <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like demanding answers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it feels like she literally just goes over the border. You know what I mean? Oh, like I assume she did, yeah. There, there's no kind of uh, sense of uh, scope in any of it, you know? Yeah. Like It's like she literally just goes over the border. There's none of the Sicario traffic kind of thing where you really feel like you're traveling through and getting to know the, the setup. No. Uh, it's just suddenly, oh, I'm just, you know, it's almost like you can see your house from there. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's like Alaska-Russia situation. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Look, the film attempts to have a heart, but it's so misguided. Somehow it doesn't feel as nihilistic as 2008's Rambo, yet it leaves a worse taste in your mouth. That film was so ludicrous, it was like an enjoyably guilty pleasure. And while this film is just as preposterous, there is a self-righteous nastiness to it that is bordering on death wish remake levels of unpleasant for me. Yeah, that's fair enough. Look, I found it dull and dully predictable. Uh, handily the worst of the franchise for me. Even poor David Morrell, the man whose novel gave birth to the character, uh, said that he left the theatre feeling degraded and dehumanised. I suspect you will as well. Are you telling me that 200 men against your boy is a no-win situation for us? You send that many, don't forget one thing. What? A good supply of body bags. And welcome to the top five. It's difficult to overstate the effect Rambo had on popular culture. And what's most remarkable is that for a large part, it was the sequel which really entered the zeitgeist. Rambo First Blood Part 2 became a reference point for everyone from kids on the playground to the President of the United States himself. A Herculean hero engaged in the most outlandish wish fulfillment, able to finally win the Vietnam War, save prisoners of war, and make up for America's most prolonged military embarrassment that affected a generation. But Rambo also defined action films for the 80s and created a subgenre around the world that had bandolier-strapped, headband-wearing, teeth-gritting, muscle heads, chopping down swathes of faceless armies. So without further ado, and with a considerable restraint to keep this to just the quintet, mm-hmm. here are the top five Rambo-esque mm-hmm. films. 
Lovely intro. One year before Rambo headed back to Vietnam, he was beaten to the punch. Or beaten to the roundhouse kick, maybe, <laughs> by the one man who could be relied on to act more woodenly in the pursuit of saving the US's reputation in Central Asia. Chuck Norris. Yeah. That's right. Chuck was Rambo before Rambo, only so, so much worse. And 1984's Missing in Action. As Colonel James Braddock, Chuck Norris as a former POW becomes convinced that there are still US soldiers held prisoner in Vietnam. Naturally, he's right. And many, many Vietnam, Vietnamese soldiers are shot, stabbed and blown up, including go-to Asian villain guy from the 80s, James Hong. Right. Um, now, this may be the first time we've ever talked at length about Chuck Norris, I feel. Yeah. And I also think it might be the last time. So let's get into it. I've always maintained that there are no successful bad actors. Sure, there are bad performances. And there are bad actors who have brief runs but never make it because, you know, they're not good actors. But successful bad actors are a myth. We rag on Adam Sandler a bit here, but we've both seen Punch Drunk Love. So we know he can act. We've talked about Stallone. But he's a man with a thoroughly deserved supporting actor nomination to his name. So he's definitely got the chops. Last week, I once again found myself coming to the defence of Keanu Reeves, a guy who, sure, has an odd acting style, but is wonderful in the Wick films and ideally cast in The Matrix. Heck, even John claude Van Damme has JCVD. Uh, and if you haven't seen that film, at least go to the show notes. Mm-hmm. where I'll link to his performance, and you can join in the re- reappraisal of the muscles from Brussels. <laughs> but I'll make an exception to my theory for one man, for Carlos Ray Norris, a man who by any metric I can think of is a terrible actor. <laughs> I've never seen him convincingly pay, portray anyone other than himself. I've never seen him convincingly express an emotion other than boredom or anger that <laughs> looks like a slight peevishness that he has been forced to sidekick some goon in the head again. Over the course of a 43-year career and 42 credits, he appears to have learned nothing about acting. Yeah. He, nothing. He's got, like, no human emotions at all, really, eh? No. No, and, yeah. he, and, he, and he can't even say words with the right intonation. Like, he, he will hit the wrong intonation on a sentence every time. Yeah. You know, you get guys like Schwarzenegger who've had to learn another language to do films. Yeah. And yet he can he can act better, you know. He yeah. can he can say a sentence in English. <laughs> yeah, Chuck Norris is basically just action man come to life. It's like Pinocchio kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Barely. Incredible. <laughs> anyway, is missing an action any good? It's a Chuck Norris film, so of course not. Uh, it did get two sequels though. Yeah. Uh missing an action. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because uh, like I was saying, that Rambo Two was the one that I remember really entered the kind of public consciousness. But First Blood was a surprise hit. Um, Stallone himself said that he was surprised that people wanted to go and see right, this film. Yeah. He thought he was making a low budget, like indie film that no one would want to Kinda go see. Was. Yeah, it was. It was. It was like fifteen million or something, and it made like one hundred fifty million. So I think he was quite well. Okay. Um, he didn't think he was making another Rocky and he certainly yeah. wasn't going to. But then, it's interesting, like you say, because then these films came out after, which did escalate the situation, took the Rambo thing and then went into back into Vietnam and went yeah. back into these things. So then Rambo 2 kind of came around and, yeah. and went, okay, you know, the boss is back in town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got to show you how it's done. Yeah, it is interesting to me that he wasn't the first to do it, though. Yeah. Stallone's most feared enemy in Rocky created his own Rambo-esque movie in 1988. And instead of asserting the Soviets' dominance, he was tearing it down. Red Scorpion was released six months ah. after <laughs> Rambo 3, and it shows. Dolph Lundgren plays Lieutenant Nikolai Petrikov Ranchenko. It took a while to say. Yeah, <laughs> it was worth it. An elite assassin sent in to kill an anti-communist resistance leader in Africa. 
Instead, he is saved by the native bushmen who heal him, and then he repays their kindness by leading them on an assault against the communist forces, including his own countrymen. Red Scorpion shares elements with Rambo. Muscle-bound military man? Check. Betrayed by his own country? Check. Goes rogue in the wild? Check. Joins forces with local modestly armed tribe to overcome a vastly superior army? Check. Lundgren is at his most imposing physical form and in the hands of director Joseph Zito, responsible for a slew of Rambo-inspired films such as Missing in Action and as well as Simon's favourite Friday the 13th. Part 4. The final chapter. Man. The director delivers a typically loud, bludgeoning action duffer. Lots of exploding buildings, slow motion shots of Dolph's muscles rippling as he unleashes the fury of obscenely large machine guns upon no doubt well-deserving commies. And he's got those kind of commando streaks of black crease across his face, even though he's in this like blazingly lit sun <laughs> desert. Uh, <laughs> dialogue isn't Dolph's forte, so instead M. Emmett Walsh, the memorably slimy puppet master in the Coen Brothers' debut, Blood Simple, shows up as a fast-talking, money-grubbing American. Um, and <laughs> I didn't know this, but I had a little bit of investigation in this, and apparently uh, this got in trouble because they shot this in Africa and it actually got support from the... Uh, apartheid government of South Africa oh. at the time, who were in the kind of the last throes yeah. of power at that point. I didn't know that, and I've seen this film. Yeah, and because they they saw it as being able to discredit the ANC, the African National Congress, <laughs> and so then it actually kind of said, well, "We've got a boycott against uh, South Africa still at this point." So yeah, cheapest. Um, Walsh was in uh, Missing in Action as well. So yeah. oh wow, him and Zito, eh? Oh man, oh man, I've, only he was in uh, Friday Thirteenth, the final <laughs> chapter. <laughs> It's curious to me that the most successful Rambo film, First Blood Part 2, takes its DNA from several sources. Firstly, his main character feels loosely based on the main character from First Blood. Mm-hmm. Um, I say loosely because apart from sharing the same backstory, he's wildly less sympathetic, more simplified creation, less tortured PTSD suffering vet, and more quiet-spoken, single-minded murderer. But First Blood Part 2 also takes its central narrative from Uncommon Valor from 1983. Look, Uncommon Valor has Gene Hackman assemble a bunch of good old boy vets from his war days to head back to Nam and rescue his son from the evil Vietnamese. All funded by Robert freaking Stack, by the way. Uh, it was a massive hit back in 83. Though it seems to squander a fun cast and a predictable assemble the team first act in a pretty formulaic second and third. But it has some goofy appeal. Um, I like the fact that a young Patrick Swayze shows up looking for all the world like the toughest soldier of the bunch, because he's the fittest and mm. youngest, uh, even as he's whining while everyone else parties it up. Um, <laughs> but naturally, he needs a rest lesson in real manly manliness, which the vets give him. But more importantly, this is the first film in what would be a burgeoning subgenre of B-movies in which heroes wipe out hordes of Asian extras to prove that, oh, hell yeah, America could have won the Vietnam War, if, you know, they'd really wanted to. But the kicker for me is that it came out one year after First Blood, and was directed by Ted Kotcheff, the director of First Blood. That always struck me as a bizarre set of events, that he kind of directed First Blood and then gave the template for First Blood Part 2 in his next film. Yeah. You know? It's interesting that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really is. And also because uh, First Blood Part 2 was written by James Cameron. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right, that's right. So, um, yeah. yeah. Does James Cameron like to talk about that? Uh, I think he claims that oh, he... Sure. Oh, a lot of it got changed or something. Yeah. I think yeah. that's his thing. Yeah. So uh, who knows? But I, I'm pretty certain he was writing, he was filming the Terminator and writing this and right. writing Aliens all at the same time. Apparently, did all three in like twelve months or something Man's crazy. Three. Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, man, Uncommon Valley. Yeah, I remember this was... Uh, and, and Red Scorpion later on, but they were like real VHS staples. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I think all these films we're probably talking about now, aren't they? Yeah. Maybe not this one. Maybe not this one. <laughs> because by 1987, Rambo ripoffs were falling off the trees and onto the heads of unsuspecting cinema goers. Death Before Dishonor is an entirely forgettable mix of Rambo and Commando that takes the many poor qualities of both films and adds nothing. Except for Fred Dreyer, who played the rough, raspy cop Hunter in the TV series of the same name. Here he plays a rough, raspy marine sergeant who has to take out a country full of terrorists in a fictitious nation, which must be called, like, Islamistan. The only thing stopping Fred Dreyer from engaging in genocide are paper-pushing diplomats and lily-livered superiors, but they can only stop him for so long. The terrorists are satisfyingly evil, literally drilling their hostages with questions. Fred Dreyer, I, I can't remember his character's name, and, you know, it's not important. He just massacres everyone, and surprisingly, there aren't too many American casualties, from what I remember. I think there's like one or two people die. The music is made up almost entirely of, like, the Marines' hymn, played, like, 20 times. Uh, officers tell Dreyer to rein it in, while he has no intention of doing anything other than rain blood. Death Before Dishonor is the kind of silly, tone-deaf, somehow simultaneously disengaging and yet entertaining load of jingoistic claptrap that, under Rambo's influence, the 80s were like uniquely able to deliver. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that I've seen this, but I feel like I could have seen it and forgotten it. <laughs> yeah, I, this is one of those ones that I, I literally haven't seen since I was like, you know, 13. Yeah. So I, I have no idea, but I do remember it because it had Hunter in it, and I was like, oh, that's that guy from that... TV series, yeah, and yeah, and it was just a Rambo ripoff, and yeah, you would you'd stumble across. Oh, someone would go. Oh, I've got Red Scorpion. Oh, I've got Missing in Action Two. Oh, I've got you know Rambo Three. Oh, yep, I've got yep, yep. Death Before Dishonor. You're like, oh, great. And it was all around that time as well. All this. The interesting thing about this stuff is that this was all going around, especially after um, First Blood. A lot of the mm. stuff was going on around the same time as Platoon. So you had Platoon, which was this kind of examination yeah, of yeah. America's failings and then they'd have like Hamburger Hill and Tour of Duty on TV. China and Beach. China Beach. You know, these kind of slightly more PTSD yeah, kind of yeah, yeah, actually yeah. dealing with people's emotions still in a fairly American flag-waving way. Um, but <laughs> you had this going on at the same time as Rambo's just re-winning the whole war. Yeah. And yeah. So it's quite funny that all of this kind of Vietnam stuff was really in vogue at that point. Yeah. Probably man. lasted for about 10 years, eh? Yeah, it was rife, as you say. Yeah. Eh? Yeah, yeah. All right, finally for me, here's a real down and dirty 80s guilty pleasure. 1987's No Retreat, No Surrender, part two. Oh. Having no relation to the original No Retreat, No Surrender, a film about a man being trained by the ghost of Bruce Lee to fight an evil Russian kickboxer played by a debuting Jean-Claude Van Damme. A plot synopsis I did not just invent, by the way. The sequel instead follows the by now well-trod path of an American travelling to Asia, this time Cambodia, to to rescue, in a kind of novel twist, his girlfriend from an evil cabal of Vietnamese and surprisingly, or not surprisingly given this genre, Russian soldiers who show yeah. up. For some reason, I feel like I watched this a lot back in the 80s. I yeah. must have had a copy of it. Uh, attracted by the many ridiculous huge explosions perhaps the cartoonish buffoonery of the plot and the frankly pretty fun martial arts no doubt uh, Cynthia Rothrock is perhaps the only name of note here right. uh, seemingly the lone woman who appeared in a sieve direct to VHS martial arts back in the day but Matthias Hughes also made his movie debut you might know the name but you might 
you're more likely to recognise the Teutonic-looking beefcake with the blonde ponytail, who was kind of a go-to Euro villain in the 80s and 90s. Right. He was like, um, you know, Ewan Bao from um, um, Into the Dragon. He was like the oh, European right, yeah. version of that guy. Yeah. Big, musty dude who showed up to get his ass kicked by JCVD. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Um, I was like Max Thayer in this as well. He's the non-martial arts guy, so the best actor in the bunch, obviously. <laughs> He's like a B-movie Harrison Ford, kind of charming and kind of centering the whole crazy fiasco in a way. And it's on YouTube. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I got to really live some of those 80 thr- 80s thrills <laughs> while I was doing this podcast. Some of them, I say, because it's an hour and 45 minutes long, wow. which is a good 20 minutes longer than it needs to be easily. Yeah. Um, so I just skimmed through, catching M16 gunfights. Everyone had M16, so... Uh, people catapulted the, through the air by grenades in a very silly finale involving a pit full of hungry crocodiles. <laughs> um, but still, this is gloriously goofy good fun. Way more fun than watching Last Blood in a cinema, I'll tell you that. Right. Oh, that's great that it's on YouTube. Actually, Red, Red Scorpion's on YouTube as well. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So, but, you, so you watched it? Uh, I actually reacquainted myself with some of it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I, I, did the I, same I, I couldn't get through the whole thing. I was like, oh, I remember the scene and the scene. and Yeah. Yeah, I remember the scene. He got branded and, and, and the end is all completely Rambo 3. Oh, yeah, but, yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, it came out six months afterwards, so it's just like... Totally, I remember. It's like Rambo 3. I'll tell you what, I was surprised with no retreat. Well, I shouldn't be surprised, but no retreat, no surrender part two. It's very silly, the explosions yeah. and people cartwheeling everywhere. But the martial arts is pretty good. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if you watch it for that, if you just skip to the end and watch the, you know, yeah. Kung Fu breakout, it's pretty fun. Oh, that's cool. Spoiler alert. And so that's spoiler alert for this month. Yep. Uh, Simon, what was your favourite film of the month? Oh, it was definitely The Thin Man. I love that. What, cool. a, what a charming, you know, romp of a film. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. Uh, and that's inspired me to check them out. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Sure. And, y- and yourself, what was your film of the month? Well, well, not exactly a stellar month of film watching for me <laughs> between, you know, Last Blood and re- revisiting <laughs> Red Scorpion. Red Scorpion. <laughs> uh, there was one little gem that I found, and it was Ghost Stories. Uh, a professional sceptic investigates three of the most inexplicable cases he's ever seen, while sometimes playing out a bit like a Black Mirror episode. This film has an especially riveting first case that has a spine-tingling sequence as a security guard does his rounds in a like an isolated underground location. It's really effective. League of Gentlemen writer Jeremy Dyson and lead actor Andy Nyman adapt their own stage play and use the comic edges of actors Martin Freeman and Paul Whitehouse to add to the disconcerting atmosphere. Ghost Story stands out as a creepy English horror delivered in the tradition of Hammer or Amicus and with quite a bit of reference to those British institutions. Oh, man, this is amazing. It's, I'm staggered I haven't seen this. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think yeah. you'd really like it. I, I know the f- film you're talking about. In fact, I, um, I was sitting by someone watching the trailer today. Right. Yeah, yeah, so I've got to get around to it. That sounds yeah, great. Yeah, uh, that, that that first part really had mm. genuinely had me on the edge of my seat. It was like, whoa, this is really yeah. quite effective. Right. In, a, in a really basic way. Yeah. It's stuff you've seen before. But it's just done really well. Oh, great. Um, yeah, so it's worth checking out for anyone who's into ghost stories. Yeah, yeah, I will. I yeah. Will. And um, and so the song we're going out to, Simon? Is Five to One by The Doors. Now, so why are we choosing this one? We, well, it's, it's, it, it, it's played during Last Blood. This is, um, it's actually the backdrop to a lot of butchery, I believe. It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, um, you know, it's got the famous... Uh, uh, Jim Morrison line, you know, no one gets out of here alive, mm. uh, which is pretty accurate. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and of course, I guess it's a Vietnam War era. Yeah. Um, so it all, it, it, that's, the, that's the rich thematic stuff you're dealing with. Yeah. Uh, subtle nuance. It's layered. Layered. Yeah. There you go. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, enjoy listening to The Doors. Um, thanks to everyone for listening, and we will see you next month. Yeah, take care.